This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. And hello, Hearts of Oak. Thank you once again for joining us on a pre-record. And you'll get this after the midterms. We're doing this just a day before the midterms. And it is my absolute honour to have Brigitte Gabriel join us today. Brigitte, thank you for your time. Absolutely, Peter. I'm so honoured to be with you. And I've been looking forward to doing this interview with you for a while. Thank you. So I have I have followed your work on my understanding and journey on Islam. Uh, you were one of those key people uh, 12, 13, 14 years ago when I started to understand. Um, and if our viewers have not followed you, they can obviously follow you on BridgetGabriel.com, actforamerica.org, which is your organization, which we will get into. But just for our viewers, Brigitte is a national security analyst, a New York Times bestselling author, and chairman of Act for America. And her latest bestseller is Rise. Let me just bring this up for our viewers. Those are Brigitte's books. For those of you in the States, you can buy them directly. For those in the UK, you can get them on Amazon, anywhere else, as audiobooks, as hardbacks, uh, Kindle. Uh, so however you normally consume, they are there available for you wherever you are. Now, Brigitte, your, uh, your background is... Uh, different everyone has a different background but i guess you're you've experienced maybe just to start with the the horrors of war uh, you were in the civil war in lebanon in the 70s and i was wondering was that where your passion for freedom first begun Exactly. You know, they say our childhood experiences shape us for the rest of our lives. And in my case, uh, you know, I was born in Lebanon, which used to be the only majority Christian country in the sure. Middle East. You know, most people, people Peter, uh, today don't even realize that, don't even remember that. Um, the country in which I was born into, Lebanon, in 1965, National Geographic had on its front cover, Lebanon, Eden of the Middle East. Wow. And that was the 1960s. 65. So it's amazing how things have changed until today. Today, Lebanon is a country occupied and completely controlled by Hezbollah, a terrorist organization, a proxy army of Iran. But when I was born into the country, you know, we were fair, we were open-minded, we were tolerant, we were multicultural, we prided ourselves on our multiculturalism, we had open border policy, we welcomed everyone into Lebanon, um, you know, because we wanted to share with them the westernization which we had created in the heart of the Middle East. Muslims used to send their children from all over the Middle East to study in Lebanon because we had built the best universities in the Middle East. Uh, they graduated and worked in our economy because we had the best economy in the Middle East, even though we did not have any oil. Unfortunately, Peter, all that began to change as the Christians became the majority mm. and the, the Muslims, uh, uh, the, the Christians became the minority and the Muslims became the majority. 
because of all the people that we have taken into the country. Up until 1975, we have things balanced. But after 1975, the, the, the Muslims who came into the country, the foreign element that came into the country, put their heads together with the Muslims in Lebanon and wanted to create a base from which to fight Israel, kill the Jews, and throw them into the sea. And they were able to use Lebanese democracy, Lebanese open-mindedness, fairness, tolerance, multiculturalism to literally topple our democracy. And that's when my life changed in 1975 when my home was attacked. And you, I think I've read about, obviously, Israel uh, were involved there in 1978 uh, and bringing some peace, some stability. Uh, I guess that affected your view of Israel as a nation which actually brought some peace to your land. Well, actually, I was raised in a Christian home. So in my home, they never talked about hate. Okay. Uh, obviously, as Christians, you know, we had more things in common with the Jewish people than we had with the Muslims in the Middle East. So in my home, I was never taught to hate anybody, not even Israel. Uh, but in 1975, radical Islamists blew up my home, bringing it down, burying me under the rubble wounded as they were trying to take over our town. I lived in a Christian town in South Lebanon called Marja. I became wounded and ended up spending two and a half months in the hospital and later came back to, to my home. But my home was no longer the home I left. Mm -hmm. I ended up living with my parents in an eight by 10 room underground uh, in a bomb shelter, basically, uh, without electricity, without water and very little food because the Islamic forces that surrounded our town cut off the electricity to our town, cut off all roads that delivered food supplies to our town and, and the water. And thankfully, I lived in a town called Marjayoun, Valley of Springs. We had seven springs in my hometown. So we were able uh, to get some water. I would crawl under snipers' bullets because we were surrounded by Islamic snipers to a nearby spring to get some water where my mother literally had to use her stocking on top of the gallon of water to catch all the rocks and all the dirt and all the stuff so we can drink the water. And every time we left our bomb shelter to get some some water, we would say our last goodbyes mm -hmm. because we did not know if we're going to come back alive or dead just to get a drink of water. Uh, we became prisoners to our town. I remember just to get some food, we would crawl out under the bombs and dig out dandelions and different greenery that grew around our bomb shelter because it was the only salads we had mm -hmm. to eat. Um, this became my life. And, you know, at the beginning of the war, we thought, you know, I remember my father thinking, oh, it's only going to be a matter of a couple of weeks because all the Christian nations are going to wake up and see what's happening to the Christians in Lebanon, how they are being massacred by the Islamists. And we thought Canada is going to come. Britain is going to come. France is going to come. Australia is going to come. America is going to come. And nobody came. And we realized the world forgot about us. And, you know, at the beginning of the war in 75, it was all over the news, the civil war in Lebanon and Beirut all over the world. And then, you know, after a month, people forgot about it, just like today in Ukraine. You know, when the war broke out, it was all over the news. And then all of a sudden, I mean, you don't hear much about Ukraine, at least not in the United States. I'm not sure about you all in Europe, uh, obviously, because you're in close proximity. But in America, I can tell you, we see zero information about Ukraine. And the whole news in Ukraine, you know, only lasted a month. So that literally changed my life. And we realized, I remember at the age of 13, 
dressing in my burial clothes, waiting to be slaughtered because we had gotten a word that we were going to be slaughtered that night. Um, and a friend of ours stopped by and he was in the militia, in the Christian militia, you know, fighting to protect us. And he said, Brigitte, I just want you to know that we heard a lot of chatter on the radios and we believe uh, we're going to be attacked tonight. And we don't believe we're going to last because we have lost so many men. Um, and he said, if I don't see you tomorrow, I wish you a merciful death. And he left. And I remember dressing Peter in my burial clothes and my Sunday best, my Easter dress, because I wanted to look pretty when I am dead, knowing that when they come to slaughter me, there would be no one to bury me. And I remember my mother combing my long black hair down to my hips and tying a white ribbon in my hair that matched the white flowers in my blue dress as I sobbed, begging her, I don't want to die. Please do something. I'm only 13 years old. I don't want to die. And there was nothing she could say to me. Mm. And I remember sitting in the corner of our bomb shelter and my father opened up the Bible and started reading from Psalm. I shall walk into the valley of spray, of death and fear no evil, for thou art with me. And my parents said to me, when they come to slaughter us tonight, we will create a distraction. You are an only child. You are young. We lived a long life. We'll create a distraction, and we want you to run towards Israel and don't look back. You see, we knew we lived five kilometers from the Israeli border, and we knew if we run to the Jews and beg for help, the Jews are not going to slaughter us because we had more shared values with them than we had with the Islamists who were surrounding us to kill us. And thank God I didn't make that decision that night because that's the night when Israel came in physically into Lebanon in 1978 and established the security zone under the Operation Litani, they called it at that time, and set up artillery bases around our towns and around our areas to protect the Christians. And that's how we continued staying alive until 1982 when Israel invaded Lebanon, working with the Christians, trying to help the Christians take back their democracy and kick out the radical Islamic element that had taken control of the country at that time. Because by that time, we had 11 Islamic terrorist uh, organizations operating out of Lebanon, including the PLO. And that's how I came out of the bomb shelter, me and my parents, and back to rebuilding our lives. And um, that's how I spent my teenage years. By the time Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982, I had lived in that bomb shelter for seven years from the age of 10 till the age of 17, robbed of my youth. Wow, wow. Um, th that obviously affects how you see Islam and how it, there's often that clash between the freedoms we have or did have or hope to have in the West um, and what Islam wants to have. Um, and you have I see, many th things written about you and a lot is because of your boldness on tackling Islam. And before we move on to the other work ACT does, I want to just touch on that. Tell us about that work. When did you begin to speak up on what you had learned about Islam trying to warn the West? Well, you know, I always try to make a differentiation be between Islam, the ideology, 
radical Islam and regular Muslims who yeah. some of them, like in America, we have a lot of black people in America who call themselves Muslims. They don't speak a word of Arabic, have never read the Quran, but identify with it as, oh, this is our heritage. It's an African religion, which is actually a point that the Islamists tried to sell in America. Oh, it's the Christians that oppressed you. Islam is your, you know, uh, uh, base uh, faith. Hmm. What I did with my life after I came out of the bomb shelter back in 1982, I decided I want to understand why evil people do evil things to good people, regardless of their faith, regardless of their color. Uh, in my case, it was radical Islam because I grew up in the Middle East. That's all I knew. I grew up in a region where that's, you know, we, we had a saying in Arabic, first comes Saturday, then comes Sunday, meaning first we kill the Jews, then we come for the Christians. So if you are a child raised in the Middle East, ever since I was a child, I heard that phrase. So we knew that, you know, because of all the wars by the Islamists trying to massacre the Christians of the Middle East, you know, this was the world I was born into. But I ended up moving to Israel in 1984 and becoming a news anchor for world news in the Middle East, covering world events, because I wanted to expose evil. And mm -hmm. at that time, between 1984 and 1989, that's when we started seeing a rise of Islamic terrorism happening around the world. And as I read the news night after night, it did not matter what continent the terrorist attack happened on, the name of the perpetrators were always Islamic Muslims. The name of the victims were always Christians and Jews, Terry Waite, Terry Anderson, Colonel Higgins, the Achille Laura, the TWA, the Panamflites. I mean, we all remember those names, especially if you were at least young enough or old enough, I should say at this point, to remember them in the 80s. Um, and so, and I realized that there was a pattern developing because what I used to think was a regional problem between a majority Muslim Middle East trying to either kill or expel the minority Christians and Jews had become a worldwide problem, but the world was not paying attention. The world was not connecting the dots. So that's how I wanted to understand why? What is driving those people to commit such acts? And that's when I when I decided to become a journalist. I ended up coming to the United States um, in 1989. I immigrated and came to America. A blessed day, April 29th, 1989. Nobody ever forgets the day they came to America to live. And I thought I left all the crazies behind. I started a TV production company. My husband and I were doing television production. Our clients were Oprah, Dr. Phil, Inside Edition, ABC, NBC, CBS, um, Fox News, CNN. Uh, so that's what we did. And I lived the American dream, being a CEO and an executive of a media company, enjoying the perks of the media industry six months out of the year, and then playing with my two children the other six months. But 9-11-2001 changed all that for me. It made me realize that the radicals I thought I left behind are now worldwide. And so after 9-11, I was one of those people who actually had followed radical Islamic terrorism and its development mm. simply because of my background, simply because of what I did with news, even when I left the Middle East and was here and was working with ABC and NBC and CBS and all these now very lefty media organizations, what, what we call fake news in our country. 
uh, I understand immediately when the attack happened that it was Osama bin Laden and it was radical Islamic terrorism. Um, before our media was even trying to think, oh my gosh, who could have done that to the United States? And that's when I decided um, I want to start something that's going to make a difference. My daughters came home on 9-11 and 9-11 was a defining moment for the United States. We all did the same thing on 9-11. 9-11, we were all glued to our television screen, at least in the United States. If you were close to a TV screen, you stood, you parked yourself there and you watched television for umpteen hours. You couldn't even change the channel. We all were devastated. We all were frustrated. We all were heartbroken. We could not believe someone could hate us so much that they are willing to hijack airliners and use them as human missiles, flying them into skyscrapers just to kill innocent people. And by the way, if the hijackers were late just 15 minutes, they would have killed over 50,000 people who work in these towers. We were fortunate, as sad as it is to say, that we lost 3,000 people, and it's a huge loss, but we were fortunate we didn't lose 50,000 people if the planes were 15 minutes late. On that day, my daughters came home from school, and they said, and they were watching me watch, you know, the images of the World Trade Center come down again and again. And my youngest daughter looked at me, and she said, Mommy, why did they do this to us? And I found myself, Peter, looking at my daughter's eyes, mm -hmm. who was around my age when I was in Lebanon, wounded, 10 years old. And I found myself repeating to my daughter the same words my father said to me when I asked that question, laying in a hospital bed wounded, Daddy, why did they do this to us? And my father said to me, they hate us because they consider us infidels and they want to kill us. So I had to repeat the same words to my daughters, to my daughter. And here, I, all of a sudden, it hit me. Here we were, two generations apart, two continents apart, 8,000 miles apart, 30 years apart. I was a young girl who spoke Arabic. She's a young girl who speaks English. Yet I had to say to her the same words my father said to me. That day was my defining moment. That day I vowed that I will do everything I can to make sure that my daughter will never ever repeat those words to her children yet unborn. And that day I realized I want to do everything I can to stop this evil. And that's when I became a born again activist. That's when I decided I'm going to become an activist. And that's when I Laid on my couch, September 11th happened on a Tuesday morning till Sunday, thinking, what can I do to make a difference? Because I'm a firm believer, Peter, that every single one of us in life, we are born for a purpose. We have a destiny to fill. No matter what we go through in life, all the trials and tribulations and the challenges are all there as lessons to prepare us, as re to refine us so we can be used as instruments of change in this world. We are the instruments of change. God, the creator of the universe, whatever you believe in, does not change the world through lightning in the sky. We are the instruments. And it is our duty to repair the world, to make it a better place, to pass it on to our children. And not only as good as we got it, but even better, at least strive for that. 
And that's when I decided I'm going to start an organization called Act for America. I want to educate millions of uninformed Americans about the threat of radical Islam and the ideology of Islam to world peace and, uh, and, and national security. And I started Act for America and I started speaking and I started traveling. And the more I educated, I realized one question kept popping up. No matter where I spoke, no matter what state I spoke in, no matter how many people were in attendance, I would speak to groups as small as eight people meeting at Frankie's Ribs in Pungo, Virginia, at 7 a.m. in the morning, to groups as big as 10,000 people sitting in some of those mega churches. And the question that kept coming up is, what can I do? Give me something to do. I understand the problem. I'm educated on the problem. I listen to the news. I read the paper. I just do not know what to do with the information. And I realized very quickly that we can educate until the cows come home. Nothing is going to change. Education is important, but education by itself is not sufficient. Education must be coupled with action. And that's when I launched Act for America. And I am proud to tell you that Act for America today has 1.7 million members nationwide. We have helped pass 178 bills on the federal level and the state level to protect the country. Now, when I started Act for America, the only threat to the United States was Islamic terrorism. At that time in 2001, uh, Antifa did not exist. Black Lives Matter did not exist. The border was not as open and as a problem as it is today. MS-13 members, gang members were not roaming our streets like today. Um, China was not the power that it is today. Remember 20 years ago, we used to tell our kids, finish your peas. There are starving kids in China. Well, there are no longer starving kids in China. Uh, Iran was not developing a nuclear weapon the way it is now. So as the threat evolved, we as an organization evolved as well as a national security organization devoted to protecting America from all threats, foreign and domestic. And that's where we are today. Tell me, there are, you called chapters, and I think uh, at the top of your uh, Twitter profile says 2% of the passionate will always rule the 98% indifferent. And you're raising up people who are passionate about freedoms, who are concerned about those threats. Tell us about that, because that's that idea of chapters of those activist groups, that's something that we don't really see here in the UK. So I'd love you to sell it to the UK so that our viewers who are based over here can actually grasp what you've done and see that as a viable way of pushing back. Uh, exactly. And look what you guys are doing at Hearts of Oak. I mean, you already have the base. You already have the fired up grassroots. You already have the people who are on fire for your country, on fire for freedom. Otherwise, they would not be joining you. Yeah. So as you can see, even within your own group, you have people who love democracy, who love freedom, who respect human rights, who love all people. Look, we do not, we, we as Jews and Christians and Buddhists and everybody else, you know, we want to live with everybody. We don't want to hurt anybody. I don't care what you believe in. You can believe in whatever you want to believe in as long as you don't shove that down my throat and try to enforce your ideology or your barbarism or whatever religion you practice on me and my children. 
other than that, I don't care what you do or what house of worship you go to. So, but we have people in the West who are rising, who are realizing, look, we welcomed you into our countries, whether you're in England or Australia or Canada or the United States, we welcomed you into our countries. We had no problem with you coming here. We had no problem with you building your own houses of worship. We respect religion and we respect democracy. But we started having a problem when those we have imported into the country started to say that they want to kill us, started committing terrorist attacks, whether in England or whether here or whether in anywhere else in the West. And that's what we have a problem with. We want people to live peacefully. So when I talk, and this is exactly, again, why I mentioned we are talking, and I want to remind people, we are talking about radical Islamic terrorism. There are Muslims who have never read the Quran, who could care less, who are gays, who just do not want to have anything to do with what they left behind. But like you said, Peter, and why quote from my website, 2% of the passionate will always overrule the 98% indifferent. And today watching what's happening in America or what's happening in England, now I truly understand how the, the, the peaceful majority of Germans sat on the sideline and allowed the Holocaust to happen. Because when the irrelevant majority sit on the sidelines thinking, oh, I cannot create waves, I don't want to get into problems, that's how evil dwells. And that's why it's our duty to speak up. So, and, and, and what I realized is we need chapters mobilized. We need groups. And what I call by a chapter, I mean, look, we have chapters as big as 1,000 people and we have groups as small as three people. You and two other people make a group. So it depends on the area. It depends on your level of courage, let's put it this way, or wanting to put your neck out. But but groups are like a support group, you know, and I believe as much as there's Alcoholic Anonymous, as much as there is whatever, spouse abuse support groups or whatever, the reason why groups are formed and come together is these are friends who share the same uh, outlook on life or share the same uh, a problem that they are trying to find the solution to. And when there are more than two or three people who are coming together to say, we're going to bond together to solve this problem, usually they have a better chance of success to solving the problem. Whether you are an alcoholic and you have 10 other people who are supporting you to stay sober, or whether you are a democratic movement who say, okay, we're going to make phone calls to our elected officials. We're going to hold their feet to the fire. We're going to remind them that they are our representative, that we elect elect them, and we need them to serve us, we the people. And so that's the importance of groups. And actually, Peter, I have to tell you, prior to 2016, uh, between 2007 and 2016, we had groups in 16 countries around the world, including in England. We had ACT for England. But when the UN started changing the rules about Islamophobia, and because we didn't have attorneys uh, in all these different countries and we did not know the laws of all the different countries, that's when we stopped our group association and we told our group, look, we will support you. We will share with you all our tools or our resources, but you cannot carry our name because we do not want to be liable if you say something and you're sued in your country because we do not know your laws and we do not have the financial resources to go represent you or support you in case you get in trouble with the law. And so, but those of you who are watching us right now in England or anywhere else around the world, 
There is power when people come together. And as much as the other side is passionate, as much as the 2% on the other side is creating mayhem, we need to come together and match their passion on the same level with the same passion and the same desire to preserve our freedoms, to preserve our liberty, to preserve our security. And that's why I, I, I hope I appeal to everybody watching me right now. Do not hide, work together, be, empire, be empowered, be inspired, speak with authority. You are standing on freedom. You are standing on laws and exercise those laws while you still can before you lose it all. And, you know, my message to you is start organizing, start your own groups, uh, connect with each other, have meetings with each other, even for nothing. You can get together on a Friday night, say, okay, pizza party at Peter's house. You invite, I'm sure every person has four friends who are just as concerned about what's happening in your country the way you are. So say, hey, we're meeting at Peter's house for pizza on Friday night, last Friday or first Friday of every month. Everybody bring a pizza, you bring dessert, you bring the, the soda, you bring the pizza, you bring the napkins, and we're all going to get together. And every meeting, every person brings one more person. And then you can see the power of multiplication. I'm sure you know one more person that agrees with you and shares your concern about the country. And everybody who's in your chapter would feel the same way. Before you know it, every chapter of yours will have 100 members. But that's how it starts, even if you do it in your own homes. There are strength in numbers. They cannot cancel you on social media. They cannot stop you. Let's go back to the bases and stop depending on social media to reach people you don't know, you don't know if they are infiltrators, and start meeting people face-to-face -face and really organizing in your communities so you can elect the right people in your local elections who represent your point of view. That's where it all starts and that's where it all ends, at the local level. Absolutely. I think one of the failures that we've seen here, I guess you've seen over there as well, is that you think that politics is going to be the solution and politics is part of the jigsaw. Uh, obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're doing this just a day before the midterms. But what happens in politics, I guess, in some ways is irrelevant that people can come together irrespective of which party is governing in which country you're in. You can come together with like-minded people. Um, and there is much more, probably more power in that collective working together than there can be in the ballot box. Yeah, look. You know, there is something about the human interaction. It's very easy to argue with somebody from the other side and cuss them out. And you cannot believe the emails that I receive. I mean, it's like, how can somebody even write this stuff? But it's so easy when you are invisible and you are just sending emails and, you know, there's no emotions, there's no interaction. But something happens when you meet people face to face and you realize we as human have more in common than then we don't have in common. No matter where you are on the political spectrum, it, it softens things. And I truly believe, Peter, there are forces around the world who are trying to divide us in the West into camps. That's the only way they're going to be able to bring down the West. Because if you are, let's say, a Democrat and you have a wife and you have children and you worry about, you know, 
keeping the lights on in the house and feeding your children and sending them to good schools and putting good clothing on them and being able to take them on holiday once a year and having quality family time with them. And, and I'm a Republican and I have the same aspirations for my family. I want to educate my kids. I want to give them a peaceful life. I want my daughters to be able to come home from university, walking back home and know that she's not going to be attacked by some illegal immigrant, uh, you know, who's a rapist or a child molester, who's not going to be killed, you know, or, or kidnapped. We all have the same desires for our families, at least the normal people, the majority of the people. Again, Put aside the 2% of the real zealots because they are on both sides. And look at the people in the middle. The majority of the people are in the middle. We all want to live in peace. We all want to love one another. We all want to invite our neighbor to our barbecue and our cookout. We all want to celebrate our holidays and wish them happy holiday and they wish us happy holiday. Be invited to each other's homes for dinner. So I think it's important to, to reach out to a friend who does not agree with you and say, I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you. Let's find our common bond. Let's find our common ground. And let's discuss how we can meet somehow in the middle and at least agree to disagree. And I think people will have a lot of success in doing that. But doing all that, you still have to protect your position and protect your democracy and protect your freedoms. You cannot ignore that. So you can work it both ways. You can reach out to those who are supposedly your enemies because usually we have no problem negotiating with the other side or meeting with them or having a cup of coffee with them. It's usually the other side who doesn't want to talk to us, who call us you know, bad names, who insult us, call us every name in the book. Um, so while you're trying to reach out to them, you still have to focus on winning your case in your local elections and gathering people who agree with you. And look, in the United States, I know this is pre-recorded the day before the election, but I can tell you that America's election is safer now than it was in 2022, because since 2022, my organization, Act for America, has helped pass 67 bills in 32 states on election integrity. So we are safer today. Our election laws are tighter today than they were uh, uh, two years ago. And we were able to do it by organizing our local groups in whatever state and working together in uh, uh, meeting with their elected officials, introducing laws. For example, we stopped Zuckerberg's, you know, Zuckerberg's, uh, Mark Zuckerberg funneled over $400 million into our election last year, which went to different uh, lefty organizations, set up ballot boxes, drop ballot boxes, drop mail. So we passed a bill in 32 states to stop meddling, stop foreign money in uh, foreign money in meddling in elections. So we called it Stop Zuckerbuck's Money. And we passed that, I think, in 32 or 33 states. So... That's the power of local groups being organized on the local level. Let me bring up on the front of the website, and you gave some of those stats, uh, that there are 178 bills passed that you've been involved with, 40, 43,000 actions taken. Um, I mean, it is, it is exciting to see those numbers because often people think, well, we're up against the threats you mentioned are huge threats, and people think, actually, there's not much we can do. But I think your track record over the 15 years since Act for America and before that, um, uh, Congress America for Truth, that you have actually 
engage. So you've mentioned one bill. I mean, tell us a little bit more about that activism um, on how you've managed to to push back those, I guess, unlawful bills. Uh, well, we created a tool called Act Now, and and, and I want to point out the action. Like you saw, over forty three million actions yeah. taken through the website, and that's only in twenty twenty two. By the way, that's oh. only twenty twenty two. 43 million people took action contacting their elected officials. And what I mean by action, those are literally phone calls, emails to elected officials, petitions, posting and tagging their elected officials on social media, calling them. So we created a tool, especially after the 2020 election, and especially with the rise of Antifa. See, a lot of our people are peaceful citizens, law-abiding citizens who are not going to demonstrate and burn buildings, who are not going to show up to the streets and block bridges. Our side doesn't do that. They believe in democracy and law and order. So we decided, how can we connect with our elected officials, especially after COVID? You know, people stayed home. You couldn't go uh, to Capitol Hill. How can we connect people and notify them of bills? So my organization has tools that monitor every bill presented on Capitol Hill, on the federal level in Congress, and bills presented on the state level, on the local level in the local states. We monitor every bill coming down on issues we care about, law and order, protecting the Constitution, terrorism, border security, immigration, um, you know, education, those type of things. And we write an action alert. We call it an Act Now campaign. It's a campaign. So let's say um, um, stop the border invasion. Because now the border invasion in America, it is an invasion. We are being invaded to the tune of millions crossing our border. It's out of control. So we write, there's a bill introduced in Congress. And so we write an Act Now campaign. We tell people, click on Take Action. They click Take Action. We give them the names of all their elected officials on the federal level and the state level. And we say, would you like to email them about this bill, about this issue? They click Confirm. Then an email pops up already pre-written for them. They don't even have to think what to say. We have our staff write the email about that bill. They click with one click, confirm. The email is sent directly to their elected officials. It doesn't come to Act for America. It goes directly from the citizen to their representative. Because remember, we are a republic. We are a representative government. And then we ask them, would you like to post on social media? We already have our team preparing social media graphics for them. With one click of a button, they can post on their social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, get it, whatever they use, and it'll tag their elected officials. And then we give them their phone numbers. With one click of a button, they can call their elected official. We even give them a script. They don't even have to think what to say, and they can read it on the phone to the elected official's uh, office. So this is how... We started putting pressure on elected officials to impact policy. And that's what we do with Act for America. So we've got two organizations, a 501c3. It started as American Congress for Truth. And then it became Act for America Education for branding purposes. And then we have Act for America, the 501c4, which is a lobbying arm. So we have a 501c3, we have a 501c4, and that's how we are able to mobilize people to pressure their elected officials. And by the way, we don't even have a lobbyist because we mobilize people to lobby their own elected officials. So we don't do the lobbying. We provide them with information to empower them to connect with their elected officials on issues. You are the left's 
biggest nightmare, I guess. You're well-spoken, you're educated, yeah. you understand, uh, you are from the Middle East, you're engaging on these issues, you are a leader, and that's often what we are lacking in our in our societies. W- what has been the backlash for you as you've stood and spoken truth? Oh, my goodness. Well, when Al-Qaeda and ISIS were very much operating up until 2017, before President Trump destroyed both of them, um, at least to the point where they are ineffective, uh, it was radical Islamic terrorism. It was death threats. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I have moved. Uh, I live like in the witness protection program. Nobody even knows where I live. Uh, I move from location to location. Nothing's in my name. Uh, even when I check into hotels, I don't check into hotels under my name. Um, I have, I cannot tell you how many times the FBI have been at my home telling me that there is a, you know, a death threats already with somebody out literally on the way to kill me. ISIS had dispatched a, a killing squad or I think the latest one was in 2018, um, an ISIS terrorist cell out of New York where were dispatched to come to my home and kill me. Um, and so it, it literally took the FBI even a few days to find me. This is how good I have created barriers uh, for security. And then and now it's the left. I think, I you know, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't affect me when, when, when radical Islamists want to kill me. I expect that from them. But I think that the, the horrific thing right now is when our own fellow countrymen and women who are who hate us so much that they are willing to slap any name. Like my name is destroyed on the internet. You Google my name, you get all the hate and the lies they spew about me. They don't even know who I am or where I stand on uh, on so many other issues other than protecting the country. Yet they call me a white supremacist. I am white supremacist. See this white supremacist, Dan? Uh, you know, and, and, and it's crazy. But finally now, all of the world, or at least in America, where people are waking up to realize that if you stand for democracy, if you stand for freedom, if you stand for free speech, if you stand for sovereignty, for border security, if you stand for law and order, if you are somebody who believes that we need to stand up for the national anthem, you know, out of respect when it is being sung, um, honoring our heritage. We don't believe in statues of George Washington uh, being destroyed as the father of our country. If you are those people, then you are called by the left a hater, an Islamophobe, a xenophobe, a homophobe, a white supremacist, a bigot, a racist, which is none of it is true. We are people who love all people who stand up for freedom, for security, for liberty, and for our values. Uh, And now they just call you names before they even listen to what you have to say. I think the destruction of someone's character and the libel and the name calling is the biggest thing that affects someone like me as a leader because you can't erase that from the internet. Once it's on the internet, it's on the internet. And do you know, like in my Wikipedia page, I can't even touch my Wikipedia page. Actually, there are two guys that control my Wikipedia page and they are both based out of London. And I have hired PR companies paying them $10,000 a month and nobody can do anything to change my Wikipedia page. These two guys in London who have never met me, do not know anything about me. They're not even Americans. Um, If anybody goes in within 10 minutes, everything is changed. And it's all lies. Don't believe 50% of it. At least it's pure lies and there's nothing I can do. But if somebody does not know me and they are Googling my name, 
That's what they're going to see. And that's what they're going to read. The character assassination, I think, mm -hmm. is the biggest crime against those of us on the front lines fighting for freedom. No, completely, completely. Well, I know that people will not go to Wiki for their info, but they can go to your website, again, brigittegabriel.com, actforamerica.org. Let me once again just bring up, uh, those are your books with the latest being Rise. And I think, our, as we've discussed, that change from focusing on one of the single threats, uh, radical Islam, to the broader range of threats that we now face, and that's rise in defense of Judeo-Christian values and freedom. Brigitte, thank you so much for giving us your time, talking about your work, your background, your organization. Fascinating to listen to what you're doing. So thank you so much for enlightening us and engaging with our audience. I uh, thank you so very much for having me with you, and I look forward for many, many more times together. Absolutely. Let me just finish off with our viewers and listeners. Thank you so much for watching. As we said, this was recorded just before the midterm elections. So this will come to you on Monday the 14th. And uh, make sure and follow Brigitte on all of those places. All the links are in the description. Uh, as it's a pre-record, it'll be available on Podbean, any podcasting app apps, and also on the video apps that don't normally stream, so BitChute and others. Uh, you can find it everywhere. So thank you so much for watching. Thank you for tuning in and look forward to seeing you on our next interview. So thank you and goodbye. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.